We look forward to seeing you at Two Days of Truth being presented by Beyond Labels. It's our fourth annual Two Days of Truth Summit. This year's theme is Detox is for Everybody. We're bombarded by everything from chemtrails to EMFs to pesticides, herbicides, even uh, toxic people. We're going to deal with all of these aspects at the Two Days of Truth Summit coming up. Sina, give us the final information. I'm really excited about this summit. I think this is going to be our best one yet. It's June 14th and 15th at Polyface Farm. We have some fantastic speakers like Sayer G, the founder of Green Med Info, uh, Dr. Leland Stillman, who's been featured by Wise Traditions lately, Hilda Labrada-Gore, affectionately known as Holistic Hilda, you and me, of course, we also have, for the first time ever, a kids and teens program. So now the adults can enjoy the adult side while they know that their kids and their teens are having fun while also being educated by Joel, myself, and Hilda. It's going to be a blast. And this year, what we're going to do is we're going to actually teach you ancient and modern techniques for how to detoxify the body, mind, and spirit. And we're going to help you put together a personalized plan like an action plan that you can take home and start. As soon as you arrive home, you can implement this action plan and start your detoxing. You know, listen, folks, Polyface is only eight hours from half of the U.S. population. Take a long weekend, come join us, and uh, you'll rub shoulders with other like-minded people, find our tribe, and be encouraged. It's a lonely place out there lots of times, especially if you're a bit of a maverick. So come and spend time with other mavericks and get encouraged, inspired, and enthused about living a more healthy life. So I love the topic for this year, detoxification. It is one of the most important topics that we could ever address at our health summit. Because as Joel mentioned, everyone, every single person needs to know how to detoxify their body, mind, and spirit in order to achieve optimal health and wellness. They go quote unquote gluten-free and they don't feel better whatsoever. So logically that person is going to conclude that gluten is not a trigger for them. But what we're finding is that when people are presenting with autoimmune or chronic diseases, that's actually not usually the case. In fact, most prominent um, functional medicine practitioners are now assuming that if you are on the autoimmune continuum or you do have a chronic disease, then you do have a problem with gluten's. Hello everybody to another episode of Beyond Labels with Joel Salatin, that would be me, your farmer, and Dr. Cena McCullough, our favorite researcher. This is going to be part two of a drill down in the whole gluten question, the grain question. Uh, you know, uh, bread and grain, they go back, you know, in antiquity, and we don't know a time when people didn't eat uh, bread or grain. And so uh, if there's one topic that's gotten uh, pushback, I think, it's all of us who love, you know, uh, a donut and who love some cake uh, along, you know, th this, this just uh, kind of gets us in a, in a tough emotional spot. Like you're going to take the last enjoyment out of my life, you know, kind of thing. And so if you missed the last one, go ahead and jump on the last uh, part one of this. Uh, I think it'll, it'll, it'll kind of um, uh, make your hair curl if you've never heard anything about gluten. Uh, but number, but but now we're going to drill into uh, 
the the kind of the history or the the pitfalls i guess a lot of them behind the um gluten-free labeling that's going on now that's it's such a fad i mean gluten has now been you know um there 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 are times when new findings seem like they're oh they're almost like uh, uh, a conspiracy and then it's a fad and then everybody jumps on the bandwagon and that's kind of where we are now with, with gluten uh, it's a it's very much a a big deal and so the industry has responded with all sorts of gluten free this gluten free that gluten free the other and so in this one uh Cena's going to drill down a little bit in those claims those labels some of the some of the uh history behind it and why some of it may not be um as 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 solution oriented as you may think Cena. great all right thanks joel okay i want to start off by by uh citing a study most people that i talk to think that they don't have problems with grains um or glutens because they're not ex experiencing immediate symptoms once they consume the grain so like we're talking about like gastrointestinal symptoms, for instance. Well, based on studies, it's estimated that one out of every seven people with gluten issues has gastrointestinal symptoms, which means only about 14 people on average who do have a problem with gluten will present with a gastrointestinal symptom. All right. I was one of those lucky people. I knew that I had a problem with grains because I would have severe, you know, gas and bloating, constipation. Um, they termed it IBS. Okay. But for the remaining 86% of people, roughly their first symptom is not going to be a gastrointestinal sy symptom. Their first symptom could be high blood pressure or diabetes or ADHD or, uh, blood sugar issues, you know, heart disease, autism. All right. So it's a misconception to think that if you don't have gastrointestinal issues, then you don't have a problem with grains, all right? Um, it's also common because of the gluten-free label, right? It's also common for someone to go gluten-free and then they start feeling better and then they feel worse again. Or they go quote unquote gluten-free and they don't feel better whatsoever. So logically that person is going to conclude that gluten is not a trigger for them. But what we're finding is that when people are presenting with autoimmune or chronic diseases, that's actually not usually the case. In fact, most prominent um, functional medicine practitioners are now assuming that if you are on the autoimmune continuum or you do have a chronic disease, then you do have a problem with glutens. Okay. And so I'm going to dive into um, issues with this label, how the label came about, issues with the label and why we're seeing the problem with um, people thinking they don't have problems with grain because they're eating the grain, the gluten-free food, but they really do. Okay, so when I say gluten, what foods usually come to mind? Right, this is usually like the wheat, barley, and rye, right? And sometimes oats. And the reason we have that definition is because of the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA. They decide what is allowed to be labeled as quote unquote gluten free. And according to the FDA, only wheat, barley, and rye contain gluten. But that definition is outdated. 
It came from World War II. So in 1944, in the Netherlands, they experienced what we call a winter of starvation. And this is when the Germans cut off their supply of wheat, barley, and rye. At that time, there was a Dutch pediatrician named Dr. William Dickey, and he was caring for children who were hospitalized with celiac disease. He observed that this forced change in the children's diet resulted in elimination of their symptoms, right? And this is, even though the children were starving, so they were starving, but the grains were taken out of their diet and they actually were healing from celiac disease. Now, after the war ended, those three grains were once again consumed by the children and they relapsed, right? They got sick again. This was the first conclusive evidence that grains could trigger celiac disease. But unfortunately, it also led to the mistaken quote unquote truth that only wheat, barley, and rye contain gluten, okay? Well, it's because those three grains, three, three grains were staples in the Netherlands at the time. So they were naturally characterized as the gluten-containing foods. Other grains like rice and corn were not as readily consumed, so they weren't tested to determine if the children's bodies reacted to those foods. And as a result, for about 70 years, grains like rice and corn have been considered, quote, safe to eat for people with celiac disease and gluten sensitivity. And then in 2013, this truth, this generally recognized quote unquote truth was officially adopted by the FDA when they defined gluten-free to be foods that don't contain wheat, barley, or rye, or crossbred hybrids of those, of those um, grains. So part of the problem is when the FDA was devising this definition of gluten-containing foods, they quote, assumed that all other grains were safe, including corn, rice, quinoa, buckwheat, millet, amaranth, teff, and sorghum. So here's one example. To substantiate their claim that rice and corn were safe, the FDA cited evidence which actually acknowledged the grains weren't adequately tested, that some people do react to grain, and that, they're, that the, the distinction between safe and unsafe was determined somewhat arbitrary. So this is the piece of evidence they used, right? I'm gonna, this is a quote. Rice and corn have generally been considered safe grains for celiac patients, although once again, there has been lack of rigorous controlled scientific study of these grains in relation to celiac disease, especially with up-to-date methods. Adverse reactions to what I shall somewhat arbitrarily term safe grains for celiac patients may not be common, but they do exist. Such adverse reactions should be the subject of more research as to the mechanisms involved, right? So arbitrarily determined that they're safe, even though they know there's adverse reactions. Okay, so the FDA, what they did was they largely based their definition of gluten on gliadin. Gliadin is the primary gluten protein that is found in wheat. But today we know there's not just one gluten proteins. As I said in the other podcast, there's hundreds, thousands possibly of, of different types of gluten proteins, which means there's probably more that we have not even discovered yet, right? And we also know that gluten isn't just in wheat, barley, and rye. We know it's in all grains, including corn and rice. Um, each type of grain contains one or more type of gluten proteins. And I'm going to try on our, you know, we have a low tech, uh, Joel and I are very low tech, but I'm going to try to share my screen to show you this chart. So this chart 
this table lists the primary type of prolamine, right? That's in the middle here. So the grain is on the left-hand side. In the middle, it's a primary type of gluten protein or um, prolamine, which is a subfraction of gluten. And it contains the percentage of gluten contained in that grain in relation to the total protein content. So you can see wheat, this is the primary um, form of gluten. Um, it's gliadin, it's 69% of the total protein. Okay, here's the primary type of gluten for, for rye. Um, avenin is the primary gluten type of oats. Come down here to corn, it's um, zain, um, rice, orzanin, um, and you can see the different percentages. So you can see, we do know that in this sample of grains that I'm listing, they all contain some type of gluten in them, right? As I said, there's not just one type of gluten. Okay, and, and the total amount. And this is important to remember when we talk about gluten-free whiplash in just a minute. So wheat contains what we think is the highest amount, 69% of glutens. Um, and then you get down here to like rice contains 5%. So it is a lower amount. And I'm gonna say these are not exact percentages because they've changed over time as hybrids were designed to contain higher levels of gluten, like to make fluffier breads, for instance. But this gives you an estimate of, you know, the types of gluten and the amount of gluten. So, so, so gluten, so, so gluten, uh, the reason that gluten from, from a, whatever, a cooking culinary baking standpoint, gluten is what makes things, enables things to be real fluffy. Yes. Yes. And so that's why we've, we've, you know, in modern times, we've hybridized it to contain more gluten because people want their fluffy bread, right? Yeah. So the gluten has changed, which we we mentioned that in the previous podcast. Um, yes. So uh, I, I should say the gluten content has changed. Okay. So, but in spite of this evidence that all grains can contain a type of gluten, the FDA still doesn't acknowledge it still doesn't acknowledge this modern evidence. They still base this gluten-free food label on the outdated, inaccurate information. And that's dangerous because it puts some of us in harm's way. So we talked about in the last podcast um, on this topic that corn surrounds you on all sides of the grocery store, right? Because of farm subsidies. It's, it's in processed foods. It's in cleaning supplies. It's in personal care products. You know, it's in perfumes. Like it's, it's everywhere. And what are most certified gluten-free processed foods made of, usually corn or rice, right? So they're not actually gluten-free. This is a label that even duped me when I was in my healing journey, which is why I'm so passionate about this, you know, supposed gluten-free label is because many of us are being duped by this label. We go in there and it says certified gluten-free. And we think that's safe for us to eat, but it is not truly gluten-free. Um, it's what we call traditional gluten-free. It's not truly, truly gluten-free. Um, this is one reason why I actually, it took me longer to heal from the diseases that I had because I didn't know that corn and rice contained gluten. All right, so I didn't know I was eating it in these certified gluten-free foods. And now we see this pattern in the scientific literature as well, that if you just go on the traditional gluten-free diet, which is no wheat, barley, or rye, it routinely fails to heal the gastrointestinal lining. 
And this is in people with celiac disease, gluten sensitivity, and people who don't even have those conditions. So in 2009, for example, there's an article published in Elementary Pharmacology and Therapeutics. This article concluded that after 16 months, okay, over a year, 16 months of these subjects consuming a traditional gluten-free diet, so no wheat, barley, or rye, only 8% of the people healed their gastrointestinal lining. 65% of the people had persistent inflammation, 26% saw no change, and 1% even got worse. So this is what the authors concluded. Quote, complete normalization of dual adenal lesions is exceptionally rare in adult celiac patients despite adherence to a traditional gluten-free diet. So in other words, the traditional gluten-free diet failed to help 92% of the people. Now, contrast that to in 2013, there's a study in BMC gastroenterology, and it specifically focused on patients who had previously followed a traditional gluten-free diet and did not get relief from any of their symptoms. Okay, so they had already tried the traditional removing wheat, barley, and rye. They took those subjects and they put them on a diet of whole unprocessed foods, including, including no gluten-free processed foods. Okay, so they removed all the grains, essentially. 82% of those people eliminated their symptoms, mm. right? 82, including resolution of prior celiac um, enteropathy. So damage to the gastrointestinal tract, 82% of them healed. Thank you for joining us on Beyond Labels. Our mission with this podcast is to make it accessible to everyone. But we are behind a paywall because the issues we discuss are often subject to censorship. We run into that and so we have an extremely modest paywall to let us have the freedom to discuss the kind of issues we want to discuss in the way we want to discuss them. And you can become a member and enjoy all this content by clicking on the description box below. We look forward to having you join our family.